Thanks. Thank you. You can be seated. We'll get straight away into this. If you turn to Exodus chapter 20, what we titled this is Foundations for Your Success in the Ten Commandments. And last night, we talked about the first line of the Ten Commandments all night long. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And what we, what we discovered was is God's heart towards us. I, I hope what you took away from last night is that God is nice. I mean, I know that sounds like really ridiculous um, and like obvious, but actually, I, I would reckon that we're actually more comfortable with a God who's judgmental than we are with a God who's loving. I reckon it takes more faith to, to I, think it, I think it takes more faith to put trust in the fact that God is kind than it is that God is full of justice. I, I, I think that, 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 you know, for us to really get our head around the fact that God really wants to marry us, mm-hmm. leaven and all. He wants to be with us. So I want to to keep expanding that with the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 says this, You shall not make to yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow yourself down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those that love me and keep my commandments. Now, essentially, uh, there's, there's a couple of ways to, to read this. In, in every scripture, what the rabbis taught was that every scripture is interpretable to four levels, okay? Peshat, Ramez, Drosh, and Sud. Not going to get into that, just it's four levels, Okay. And, that, and that, that at the end of the day, that we're just Joe and Jane, okay? We're just these guys. If you were here last night, you remember what I'm talking about. That there's, there's a lot of complications in a four-dimensional person trying to communicate with a two-dimensional one. Huge. Like if I was to tell Joe, if I said simple things like, Joe, in my world, I can extend my arm out. Joe says, what in the world are you talking about? I can't. He's stuck in his two-dimensional world. And so the, the, the number of complications that exist between a four-dimensional being and a two-dimensional being, um, can you imagine the complications that exist uh, between an infinitely dimensional God trying to communicate with a four-dimensional person? That, that at the end of the day, we are, we're, we are just finite. And so what the rabbi said was that an infinite God limited himself to the, to the language of men. That's how the Bible came about. That God humbled himself and he limited himself to the language of men. And so because God limited himself to the language of men, that every scripture has four levels of interpretation and is like a diamond that, that depending on how you turn it in the light, has 70 different facets of truth. So, so we just never can get our head totally around God. Why? Because we're Joe and Jane. We're just Joe and Jane. But, but this command, uh, essentially, on the surface is this. Don't put statues of other gods in your house and bow down to them. And I, and I think that that would be fairly irrelevant to us. Uh, most of us uh, would, would not struggle with that. where we are in life and where we are with God. Uh, we don't struggle with that concept at all. 
Uh, matter of fact, if, if someone gave you a statue of something that could have been a god, there's something inside of you that just won't allow you to place it in your house. You think it's creepy, and it would give you a really weird feeling inside. So you, you just wouldn't do that. So, so then the question becomes, what is else is going on here? What is deeper? And there's two big, there's two big things going on here. Two incredible questions that when we answer these questions or begin to journey to the answer to these questions, we begin to lay a foundation for the success in our life. And those questions are this. Number one, how big is God? Actually, how big is he? How big is he? And and number two, where exactly is he? Where exactly is God? And how big is God? These are the deeper underlying truths going on here. Because if you, if once you realize that once you make God into an idol, then there is a place where that idol lives. And so there's a place where he can be here, but he's not here. Once God becomes an idol, once, that, once there's an idol made to represent who God is, then you can organize your life around God being with you in some circumstances and God not being with you in others. And God says, if you want the best life, we're not going to do it that way. We're not going to do that. Let's let's keep in mind the context. For those of you who were not here last night, these people, how would the first century people have seen this? These people were 430 years enslaved. 430 years. That's all they knew. Slavery, 430 years. And they saw this as a 10-word ketubah, a 10-word marriage proposal. So a 10-word marriage was a God is wanting to marry them. And God is wanting not just to marry them. God is wanting to use them to create the best culture the earth has ever seen. A culture so blessed that the whole world is going to want in on it. And so God essentially is saying, if you remember, remember the first word, the first word of the Ten Commandments was anarchy. A-N-C-H-Y, anarchy. Which meant your authority is multiplying inside the hedge of praise and submission. The first word of the Ten Commandments was grace. The first word of the Ten Commandments was, this is my idea to increase you. This is my idea to make you bigger. So he says, if you want to live a big, successful life, you've got to organize your life to where God is with you all the time. That, that you, don't, you don't worship a God that's with you one minute and not with you the next. That that's going to lead to all kinds of problems. We can't do that. We also can't make God manageable. That, 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 that we, we, have to, we have to examine our ideas around God. Remember, perception is everything. I think I preached on this one particular word last year, but it's worth mentioning again. Perception is everything. The Hebrew word for iniquity is the word avon. Avon. A-V-N. Remember, the Hebrew language was originally pictures, not letters. So every Hebrew letter is a picture. Therefore, every Hebrew word is a comic strip. Okay? So, so the way they wrote this letter was an I. The way they wrote this letter was a hook. And the way they wrote this letter was fish multiplying. So, so when a Hebrew person read the word iniquity, what they read was, was whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. Whatever your eye hooks to gets bigger. Perception is everything. However you see, here's the principle of the second command. However you conceptualize God gets huge. And you actually, you actually begin to buy into the, to this lie that says you're right and everybody else is wrong. Like you, as a four-dimensional person, has figured this infinitely dimensional God out. And we can't do that. We can't live like that. So, so my question, my first question is this, is where is God? Like, where is he? 
I, I can tell you this, that in, in white European cultures, innately we believe that God is in heaven. We believe that God is in heaven. Because we, we, we come from Europe. There's a really big, powerful church in Europe with big buildings named after apostles who they said, and they've done a lot of good things in the world. I'm not downing them. But in their idea of God, God was way up there and we're way down here. And you have to have somebody go between you and God. That God's afar off. They even, they even influenced the translation of, of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said it this way. When Jesus was talking about how to relate with God, this is what he said. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the Pentecostals do. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Nor in your prayers make it about your needs. For don't you know your Father in heaven knows what you need even before you ask. So essentially, Jesus says, if you want to have the best relationship with God, don't make your prayer life about words, and don't make your prayer life about needs. Well, um, hello. Like, if, if, you, if you're like anything like me, and you examined your life for a second, um, would you step back, and, and let me ask you this question, is if you took all the words, and you took all the needs out of your prayer life, what would be left? And Jesus says, if you want the best life with God, don't make your prayer life about words, and don't make your prayer life about needs. But he said this, but when you pray, say this, my Father, who is in heaven. Horrible translation. The, the translation, the word there is uranus, which is plural. The problem with translating it heaven is that it doesn't fit, number one. Number two is this, is if the supply, if, if, the fa if our Father is in heaven, what's the problem with that? Where's heaven? Well, anybody want to try to give that a go? Like, where's it at? Is it somewhere in New Zealand? Is, is it in Longreach, Australia? Is it in Utah somewhere? Like, where's heaven? So essentially, Jesus would have been saying, my Father, who is in a place I have no idea how to get to. No, come on. So he says, my Father who is in heaven. If you're going to translate it heaven, you have to translate it heavens because it's plural. But in 90% of Hellenistic literature, the word uranos is translated air that we breathe. Air that we breathe. So, so essentially Jesus was saying, my Father who's as close to me as the air that I'm breathing. Hallowed be that name. The, the word hallowed just means to render, acknowledge, or become aware of. So, so essentially what Jesus was saying is this. If you want to read it as a strict Jew, this is how you would read it. The supply of everything I need, which is as close to me as the air that I'm breathing, I stop and become aware of that. The Hebrew people called it God awareness. That we walk in an awareness of God all the time, and that is prayer. It, it actually fits the first mention of the word prayer in the Bible. The first mention of the idea of prayer in the whole Bible is in Genesis chapter 4, last verse. And this is what it says. Finally, the sons of Enosh called upon the name of the Lord. Finally, the sons of Enosh called upon the name of the Lord. Well, the word called there is three letters in Hebrew. Once again, three letters, three pictures. It's three heads. The first letter is the picture of the front of the head. The second letter is the picture of the back of the head. And the third picture is the picture of an ox head going into a yoke. So you got the front of the head, you got the back of the head, you got an ox head going into a yoke. So the first idea of prayer in the whole Bible was this, that prayer is a turning of the head in order to face the one who can bear the burden. That prayer is a turning of the head in order to face the one 
who could bear the burden. In other words, you get your head off yourself, off your words, off your needs, and you get it onto your father who is as close to you as the air that you're breathing. See, to the Hebrew people, the actual name of God was breath. When, when, when uh, Moses asked God, what is your name? It's translated, my name is Jehovah. But actually, that's not what he said. Actually, what he said was, was my name is yud ha vav My name is yud ha vav which phonetically does not go together. It'd be like me saying, my name is Hoshben-Javan, yishben shaben even shaben it, it, it didn't even make any sense. He, it's essentially God saying, because remember, Moses came up in a culture where if you could learn your God's name, then you could control him. If you could learn your God's name, you could control him. So, so Moses says, I want to control you. What is your name? And God says, you can't box me in. Are you kidding me? My name is Yud Ha-Vav-Ha. Essentially, my name is Breath. So what the rabbis taught was that the name of God was actually breathing. Yud Ha-Vav-Ha. Yud, ha, vav, ha. That essentially it, it, it mimicked the sound of breathing. Later they wrote things like, the name of God sustains life. Isn't it interesting that when you give birth to a baby, the first thing it has to do to live is to say the name of God. It has to breathe. Isn't it interesting that the last thing someone does before they die is they take their last breath. In other words, they quit saying the name of God. Isn't it interesting that tonight, as you're listening to me, all of you, involuntarily or involuntarily, in and out, in and out, you're saying the name of God over and over and over again in order to sustain your life. How gracious is God? How gracious is God that if you were to make an appointment with an atheist at a coffee shop, that the very breath it would take for him to say, I do not believe in God. He's actually utilizing the name of the one he doesn't believe in to sustain his own life. How nice is God to let him keep breathing? (laughs) It is the name of God, that God is as close to you as the air that you're breathing. And I would simply say to you this, that in order to live the best life, you have to live a life with that awareness. That, that if you're living a life right now that God is somewhere else and you're in here, then, then that does not work. And, and if God's in here with you now, but when you go to work tomorrow, God's not there, I would say to you that, that we're missing something. That actually the best life is found in every morning becoming aware that the mighty one is in you now. He's in you. They called it God consciousness. That was prayer. That, that if I go to the mall today, if I go to the giant Hastings Mall, if I go there today, <laughs> that walking through... The incredible metropolis that is downtown Hastings. <laughs> that walking through that, if I stop and become aware of the mighty one that's as close to me as the air that I'm breathing, that I'm just as much in the spirit and just as much in prayer as if I was on my knees somewhere. That, that, that accessing God, that you have to understand ha- where he actually is. What is the proximity of God? And I would say to you this, that if your concept of God, your idol around God is that God is in heaven and you're down here, I would say that we're missing something. That we're not living the best life. That God is actually as close to you as the air that you're breathing. That's why when you look at rabbis, when, when they prayed for people, a lot of times it says, and they breathed on them. Jesus did this all the time. I mean, there was websites dedicated to how horrible Benny Hinn was for breathing on people. But all you gotta do is look at how Jesus prayed. It, it, many occasions, John 20 is one of them. It says, and with that, he said, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them. Why? Because they believed God existed in their breath. That if God lives in my breath, then if I breathe on you, fair enough. So, so you have this idea of, of, of God, that, that he, is, he is everywhere. So, so where is God? And, and then the second question is this, is how big is he? 
how big is God? And you can answer that question by simply asking this question. Um, what are my concepts of God? What are my concepts about the things that God would or would not do? All of us have them. And, and, and whatever they are, they are idols. They're idols. Like whatever they are, however we conceptualize God, God would always do this. God would never do that. Whatever God would go this far, God wouldn't go this far. Whatever those concepts of God are, they become idols. They become idols. And, and so the second command is this. It, it, it's, it's, the first part of the second command is the obvious one, which is don't have statues of other gods in your house. Don't carry pictures of your old boyfriends around. This sort of concept. But the deeper concept for those of us who've gotten past that is this. Is don't live your life with God being here but not here. Actually, God needs to be with us everywhere. For us to live the best life, we need to walk in a constant awareness that the mighty one is with me. Right now, he's with me. Just now. Just the mighty one is with me now. He's with me now. And he could do mighty things through me. Whatever Jesus did, he could do through me. Because I'm not a big shot. I'm a very small shot with a big shot living in me. It's, it's just, it's, it's God in me. That God is my life. That God isn't a part of, Do you realize in the Hebrew language, there is no word, not one word for spiritual. There's not a word that is translated spiritual life. That's something we made up. We, we made up this idea that part of our life is a spiritual life and part of our life is a natural life. No, 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 no. Your whole life is spirit. Your whole life is spiritual because you're a spirit. We spend forever trying to make our natural man spiritual. You can't make a natural man spiritual. Your whole life is spiritual. Everything you do is spiritual. Everything, to the smallest minute detail, it's all spiritual. And so where is God? But, but then the other, the other concept is this, is how big is he? What, what limits do you put on God? What boxes do you put around God and say, God has to operate in this? And, and my question is this, is how can you box breath? God, God gives us all sorts of things. When he, I think God messes with people's head. You look in the scriptures, and every time, every time a man tried to get his head around what God was, he just said, he gave him things you can't box up. I'm breath. I'm wind. Can't do that. He, he describes himself as two things. Physics says this. Physics says that force equals mass times acceleration. That in order to have force, you have to have mass and you have to be moving. But God describes himself as things that have infinite force but no weight. He said things like, I'm light. I'm light. How do you weigh light? What does light weigh? Nothing. I guess you could weigh it technically with photons or something, but what does light weigh? Nothing. But if you hone light down into a detailed thing, you take a laser and you can cut through steel. You can cut through steel with that thing. Infinite force, no weight. God says, that's me. I'm an anomaly. I don't obey. I make the rules. That's me. He said, I'm the word. Words have infinite force, but no weight. Right? Infinite force. Oh, a word. I hate you. Infinite force. No weight. I love you. Infinite force. No weight. God said, I'm that. I have infinite force, but I can't be measured. You can't put a box around me. A word has infinite force, but no weight. Right? Hey! See? Infinite force. No weight. That's the word. 
That's the word. All right, so two things. Two things. On the surface, it's don't worship man-made things. Underneath that is don't try to represent me with anything you can create. Let me, let me point out an obvious observation. Number one, while he was getting this command, the people were down already making an idol. It was just in them to need something to worship, an object. God is trying to get across that in order to have the best life, we have to walk with an awareness of God that he is bigger than anything we can ever imagine. Let, let me give you a couple ways to say that. Number one, don't try to make me manageable. God's saying, don't try to manage me. You can't manage me. I'm things like light and word and mercy and wind. Come on, man. You can't manage me. Number two, don't try to define me to a location. Don't try to make me live here and not here. That's not me. You realize this was, this was antithetical to every major culture in the world. Every major culture in the world at that point, their gods lived in temples and, and they built things to represent them. God says, I'm so much bigger than that, you can't even imagine it. Can't even imagine it. Don't put me in a place where you could be with me or without me. I am your life. This is what he's saying in the second command. And, and my question is this, what boxes do I have for God? What boxes do I make God fit in? Only you know the answer. What boxes do you make God fit in? Hey, here's some boxes. He's in heaven. God's in heaven. You know, the idea that God is in heaven is exactly what this command is trying to get us not to do. Don't define me to a location. I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere. What God would and wouldn't do. We have all of these things. See, this is different from every other culture in the world. And, you, and you, the truth is, is this command takes care of all others. If God's the center of our life, you wouldn't steal because you'd trust God. You wouldn't murder because you would believe God would take vengeance. You wouldn't covet because you have God at the center. To take God out of the center ruins everything else. And after the first two commands, the, the Ten Commandments are odd in this way. After the first two commands, God adds a warning. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sins of the fathers for the third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. God is not trying to make us good. God is trying to make us free. And in order to live the freest life, two things have to be true. We have to walk all the time in an awareness of Almighty God. You live in New Zealand, for goodness sake. This ought to be easy. You, I mean, how hard would it be to be riding down some of these roads and just stop for 10 seconds and look at that great mountain and think, the God who put that there, he lives in me. He's as close to me as the air that I'm breathing. What would your life look like if you stopped and felt the truth of that all the time? And in your imagination, you built that down to be true in your life. What would that feel like? See, the Bible says, we quote this all the time, the truth will set you free. Actually, it doesn't say that. It says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth in and of itself doesn't make you free at all. Knowing the truth. And I'm talking about a deep knowing. Hebrew people feel thoughts. Greek people think thoughts. Let me give you an example. We're followers of Jesus Christ in here. And most all of us would believe that Jesus Christ has forgiven us of every single sin. Correct? We would, all right, seriously, if you believe that, I want you to raise your hand real high. Jesus forgive you of every single sin. I'm not trying to, to confuse you. Okay, so put your hands there. So you believe the truth that Jesus has forgiven you of every single sin. So you're completely innocent before God. Like completely innocent before God. Now with that being a believed truth, how many of us have felt guilty in the last week? Exactly. So you believe you're innocent, but you feel guilty. That's not doing anything for you. It's not doing anything. When you believe you're innocent, but you feel guilty, the truth that you're innocent doesn't matter. 
that, that, you, that we have to take the truth that God is with me. What, what would happen if, if just for just 10 times a day for 10 seconds, you're talking about 100 seconds a day, a minute and a half, just a little over a minute and a half, if what we did, if we just stopped and became aware that the mighty one was in me, that he's not in heaven somewhere, he's actually in me. God's not trying to make us good. He's trying to make us free. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy is a retelling of the book of Exodus. And in this retelling of this command, something interesting happens. Deuteronomy 4 verse 13 And it says this, And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, ten commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments so that you might do them in the land where you go over to possess it. Therefore, take good heed to yourselves. For you saw no kind of likeness in the day Jehovah spoke to you in Horeb out of the midst of fire. So there's that whole, if you were here last night, there's that whole, he spoke out of the fire. They saw languages inside fire at Mount Sinai. But he says, remember, you didn't see any likeness. You, you saw things you couldn't get your head around. Things like voices inside fire. Things like wind. Things like trumpet sounds. Things that you can't contain. Lest you act corruptly and make yourself a graven image, the likeness of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish in the waters beneath the earth. That unless you lift your eyes up to the heavens, and when you see the sun, moon, and stars, all the hosts of heavens, lest you should become driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has allotted to all the nations under heaven. And you've got to get the point. In other words, if you can think it up, I'm not that. Deuteronomy 4, verse 23, a couple, couple verses down. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, and which he made with you, and make yourself a graven image, a likeness of anything which Jehovah your God has forbidden you. For Jehovah your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When your fathers, sons, and sons of sons, and when you have had remained long in the land, and have dealt corruptly by making a graven image, the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger. In other, words, in other words, God is saying, if you want the best life, you, if you can imagine it, it ain't me. If you can imagine it, I'm bigger than that. Anytime you take a concept that you as a four-dimensional person can put God in and you say, God has to live in here, all you're doing is cheapening your life. You're going against the very nature that God made us to be. Anytime you go against your nature, you're cheapening yourself. Let me give you a, a, a very... Interesting, sort of common, and, and now very relevant example. Do you guys know that it is in the style now is for men to wear women's jeans? Have you seen this? Y you guys are wearing them now. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's very, no, 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 they're, great. they're cool. They're very cool. It's, 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 that's what's supposed to be happening. What they do now is they cut men's jeans so that they would fit women's legs. And, and, and they're called skinny jeans, right? And I was giving a lesson on this. I was, I was doing the, um, the, the conference at the Dream Center. Huge, huge thing. And the whole band was wearing these jeans. And so in, in one of the breaks, they said, Shane, in order to be cool, man, you, you got to get you some skinny jeans. <laughs> and I said, do I look skinny to you? They said, no, 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 that's cool, man. You can't be cool unless you're wearing skinny jeans. And I said, but they look very uncomfortable. 
<laughs> like highly, highly uncomfortable. They said, oh, they're very uncomfortable, but they're very cool. They're, they're, very, they're very cool. And so, so you have to get these. You, you have to go get some skinny jeans. They said, matter of fact, we'll sew them into your life. We'll pay for them. So they took me to the shop called Diesel. Okay, so they took me to this shop at the Gold Coast called Diesel, which is like the skinny jean capital of the world. Okay? And so we walked in, and these jeans were 550 Australian dollars. 550. So I walked in, and I said, listen, they're going to buy them for me, but I want the most unskinny skinny jeans you have. So I want, the, I want the skinny jeans for fat guys, all right? That's what I want, all right? And so, and so we walked in, and, uh, and so they got me the fattest skinny jeans that they could get, and, um, and, and they, they got me a shirt to go with it. And so I, I went into the uh, dressing room to change, and I squeezed my big rear end into them <laughs> and just really trying to get my legs up in them. And, and once it got to my waist, it was fine. I mean, they fit my waist. They fit my waist fine. It was cut fine in the waist. It's just the way they cut the legs, and everything else. And so they, and so you, so you squeeze, you squeeze yourself into these jeans. And and I, I held my breath. I couldn't hardly breathe. And 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 I and, and I, I buttoned them up and and then put the shirt on. And, and and I walked out. And the girl that was working at the diesel shop that was putting it all together, she took, she did exactly what she did. I walked out and she went. And so I, I, I agreed with her. I looked at, but I, I went back. I went back, and and, and I pe- was peeling myself back out of these jeans. And, and I looked at my. You know when you have a moment when you look at yourself in the mirror. And, and I started. I, I started to have a, a moment of feeling sorry for myself. And the thought hit me: You're getting old. <laughs> you, you you can't you, you you can't wear cool jeans. Like like you're you're just getting old. You're just really 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 getting old. And and and, and then and so I'm putting my other jeans back on. And I realized it hit me. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, you're not getting old. You're not getting old. Men were designed by God to have room in the front of their pants. <laughs> and to go against the basic grain of that is asking for trouble. You just are. And I would say to you guys, bless you guys. How you're sitting with one leg in the air, I have no idea. <laughs> oh, they're both in the air. Spread. Okay, that's fair enough. I have no idea what's going on back there. But one day, the skinny jeans aren't going to be cool anymore. And you're going to look back on this moment and go, what was I thinking? <laughs> I lived in a way I couldn't breathe. For what? To be cool. Young man, you look pretty cool. I can tell you, you were designed by God to have room in the front of your jeans, man. Be free. God designed it. Anytime you go against God's basic wiring, you're asking for a problem. A big one. We could apply that in a hundred different areas. But I can tell you this. God wired you to be a spirit. And so when you try to operate with God outside of spirit, when you try to say, okay, God's got to fit my box. No, no, no. God's got to fit his box. When you, when you say, God lives here but not here. Wait a minute. No, now we've stepped outside of spirit. And you're going against the grain. 
you may as well be trying to squeeze yourself into skinny jeans. You're going way against the grain. Way against the grain. Look at, I'm going to take you on a quick journey. Look at the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Once again, we're asking the question, where is God and how big is he? Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. One of the great leaders of all time is having an encounter with God. And this is what, this is what happens between Moses and God in Exodus 33, 18. It says, and he said, I beseech you, let me see your glory. So Moses says, God, let me see all of you, basically. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And in in other words, you can't possibly understand me. And he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand upon a rock And it will be, while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand. And I will take away my hand and I will show you my backside. But my face cannot be seen. Now there's a lot going on here. Let me give you a couple thoughts. Number one is form versus function. Hebrew people always see function. Greek people always see form. Okay? So Hebrew people always think function. So so it says, and God hid Moses in in the in the crevice of the rock with his hand. So, so as white people from Europe, we all picture what? A hand. Whose hand? God's hand. How big is God's hand? Huge. Like it's God's hand. It's big. Okay? But, but a Hebrew person doesn't think of a hand. He doesn't think of a hand. He thinks function. He thinks, what does a hand do? A hand holds, it comforts, it hides, it protects, it touches it, it, it's, it's all about what a hand does. So, so when, they're, when they're using real life illustrations about God, they're thinking function, not form. The strong arm of the Lord, the hand of God. These sorts of things are all function. Why? God does not have a hand. God is spirit. A, a matter of fact, to try to put a form on God is exactly what this command is trying to get us not to do. So, so you're thinking function, not form. And God hid Moses in the crevice of the rock with his hand. It's function. Not for him. He's hiding him. He's shield. It's, it's a cover. It's a cloud. But because the, the very next sentence doesn't work. If, if you're picturing a hand, when it says, and God hid Moses in the crevice of the rock with his hand, when it says, and God showed Moses his backside, I mean, if God's hand is big, God's butt would be huge. It'd just be, whoa! It's covering the sky. Like, no, of course not. We wouldn't think that way, right? So it's, it's, so it's, not, it's, it's not God's hand. It's what God's hand is doing. And, it, and it's not God's backside. It's what is the function of the backside of God. What is the function of the backside of God? Which, which if you back up and think about it, it's fairly easy to do. The, the Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Which is interesting. There's one scripture in Psalms that says, Blessed is the man who walks into the presence of the Most High, for he's dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. Which leads a question, that if God is light and in him is no darkness at all, how does a being of pure light cast a shadow? In order to cast a shadow, you have to be bright, you have to be dimmer than something other than you. you like something has to be brighter than you to cast a shadow. But it says, blesses the man who walks into the presence of the Most High, for he's dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. And so the picture is that there's a man in the presence of pure light. Well, if the man is in the presence of pure light, then there is a shadow being cast. But whose shadow is it? 
the man's. And so what he's saying is, is that when you're in the presence of God, the shadow of the Almighty is you. It's you. That when you're in the presence of God, the shadow of the Almighty is you. You see this come to play in the New Testament. The Bible says that Peter was so in the presence of God that his very shadow carried the power of God and raised somebody from the dead. So, so you see this kind of stuff where you're in the presence of God all the time. So, so it says God is light and him is no darkness at all. Now, now we know from science that, that light is traveling away from us at 186,282 miles a second. That's what we know. We know that the universe is expanding at the speed of light. And we know from the Bible that God is holding the universe together. So doesn't it stand to reason that the universe would expand at the same speed of the substance of which God is? Right? right? We, you still with me? Okay. So the universe is expanding at the speed of light. God is light and God is holding the universe together. All of that makes sense. Well, we know that light is constantly going out. We know from physicists that they can take big, huge telescopes and they could go way out there and they can see pictures of stuff. The purpose of light is to hold pictures. It's to hold pictures. Your eye doesn't see anything. It just takes a picture and sends the image to your brain and your brain tells you what you see. For instance, everybody look at me right now. Take a picture. All right, now close your eyes. Bring that picture up. See, you can see. See? So, so, so you, you're, you're, the purpose of light is to hold pictures. So if Moses saw the backside of light, he would have seen where light had been, which would be the past. It would be the past, which is how the rabbi said that he wrote Genesis without living it. You imagine him sitting there in the crevice of the rock? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and darkness. And the Spirit of God, he saw the past. He saw the past. Let me, let me just give you, let me, let me give you a couple of observations here. Moses can only handle God's trace parts. Neither can we. We cannot even begin to comprehend the smallest part of God. To think that we could figure God out puts us past Moses. To think that we can confine God to a particular system of theology is prideful. One of the Hebrew pictures of God is breath. How can we confine that? Look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 26. Isaiah 26, verse 4. Isaiah 26, verse 4. Incredible scripture, the prophet is commenting on the, the, the character of God. This is what it says. Trust, Isaiah 26, 4. I'll wait till I hear some less pages turning. Isaiah 26, 4. Trust. Let me just make an observation about that word trust. You don't have to trust anything you already know. You didn't get in the car tonight and go, well, I trust I know my way to church. You didn't get in the car tonight, put it in D, and hit the gas and go, well, I hope it goes forward and not backwards. You, 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 didn't, you didn't sit on one of these chairs tonight and go, man, I hope this holds me. I'm trusting that holds me. No, you know the chair will hold you. You know the car, if you put it in D, is going to go forward. You, you, you know your way to church. You know your way. You, you, don't, you don't trust anything that you know fully. That, that trust in, in and of itself has an unknown element to it. It has something unknown to it. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is the everlasting strength. The word for everlasting there is olam, O-L-A-M. 
Olam. And this is what it means. Olam is translated everlasting a lot. When you see everlasting life, you see things like this. Everlasting. The, the word Olam actually means to the vanishing point. Properly concealed. In other words, it's like chasing the horizon. And basically what, what, what Isaiah is saying, the prophet, he's saying that, that part of walking with God is embracing what you can know about him. But another part of walking with God is the trust factor that there are things about God we'll never be able to comprehend. Because to chase after God would be chasing after something we will never find the end of. That God is so huge. That to embrace this God is to embrace a God who's beyond what we can comprehend. This takes faith because we're stuck in time and space and God is not. We're stuck in one time dimension. We can only be at one place at one time, and we can't make time move any faster or any slower. We can only be in one space at one time, and we can't, we can't beam ourselves anywhere. God is the exact opposite of that. In John 4.24, there's this lady, and she says, Hey, um, my ancestors say to worship God on this mountain, and your ancestors say to worship God on that mountain. What do you say? And Jesus is like, um, hold on, don't you get it? Uh, neither is true. God is spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit. Like, in, in other words, you, you can't confine God like that. God is as close to you as the air that you're breathing, that as big as he is, eternally huge in the cosmos, he still is infinitely concerned about you and willing to enter your very breath, that God is so humble that he's willing to live in your very life and be carried by you to make you a divine taxicab. And in order to live the best life, we have to live our life eternally conscious that the mighty one is in us, and he is bigger than anything Anything we could ever imagine. Anything we could ever imagine. In, in other words, Jesus is saying God is not a thing existing in time and space. Things exist in time and space. We, we, we can define everything by space and time. We know that that's a water bottle because of the boundaries that it carries, the container that it's in, the way it looks. We, we know that this is a podium because of how it looks. The boundaries that make it, we just say that's a podium. It's a computer. It, that, that's Doug. That's Steve. That, 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 that's Nikki. <laughs> we just know. We know by the boundaries. Everything. Cup. Pen. Whiteboard. Everything. Everything we know is by its boundaries. And God is saying, I'm not that. I'm going to be different than anything you ever know. I'm not going to be definable. We don't like spirit. I'm going to bring this to a close right now because this is so huge. And I, I want to apply this huge. We don't like spirit because we can't control it. It doesn't obey our rules. We, we, with God, we lose control because we can't fathom him. One of the biggest barriers of you having a great relationship with God is if you're addicted to being right and are a control freak which wouldn't apply to any of us, would it? I mean, is anybody in the room grown so far as they like it when they can't make others bend to their will? With God, we lose control. To worship a God who is spirit is to means we have to give up control and choose to trust. You can't get your head around him. You can't be right about it. It also means, can I help everybody? Let me just give everybody a relief here, okay? God does not expect you to be right. The pressure's off from that. The rabbi said it this way. If we spent two hours tonight talking about God, 
If 95% of what we said was wrong, God would still be pleased just because we gave up a night to talk about him. You're a four-dimensional being. You're just Joe and Jane, man. You're just Joe and Jane. You're doing your best to try to figure out a God, an infinitely dimensional God, infinitely dimensional God, and you're a four-dimensional person. God does not expect you to get it right. God just expects you to journey. When you look at Jesus, the people who ticked Jesus off the worst were the people who actually thought they figured it out, who actually thought they were in and everybody else was out. This is what one rabbi said. I love this. There are things that I can know about God because he revealed it. But there is also a sense of God that I cannot fathom. To walk with this God means I have to embrace both sides. I have to embrace both sides. God is indescribable. Let, let me give you one example. Um, and, and I stole this from Louis Giglio. Uh, but but let, me, let me just give you one example uh, that, that really spoke to my heart. If, if I had a piece of paper... If you just take a piece of paper and you look in the thickness of the piece of paper, just the thickness of that piece of paper, let's say that it represented 93 million miles. The distance from the earth to the sun was one piece of paper. If, if we were going to stack a piece of paper, if we were going to have a stack of paper to represent the distance from the earth to the nearest star, you would need a stack of paper 21 feet tall with each piece of paper representing 93 million miles. That's unfathomable. To represent the distance across the known galaxy... We would need a stack of paper 310 miles tall with each piece of paper representing 93 million miles. To represent the distance across the known universe, we would need a piece of paper 31 million miles tall. Now, my question is this. Is what if, what if we could get in a capsule and go to the end of the known universe? What if we could get in a capsule and go to the end of everything we can know about God's creation what would happen when we got to the end? Let me tell you what would happen. There would be a door there. And you would open that door and there would be a whole nother realm unexplored. God is Olam. You can never get to the end of his bigness. Never. If you got to the end of the known universe and you opened the door, there would be a little garden gnome playing a flute. Doop, boop, 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 boop. I don't know. Where'd that come from? <laughs> if you got to the end of the known universe and you opened the door, you would actually open it to a whole other realm of things we haven't even thought of. God is that big. This is why we're constantly learning things. Think about medicine now versus then. Think about medicine now versus 50 years ago. When I was 12 or 13 years old, I had a stomachache. And I told mom, I said, mom, I, I can't go to school today. I got a stomachache. And she wasn't sure if I was faking it or not. So she said, she said, son, if you've got a stomachache and stay over school, I'm going to have to take you to the doctor. And, and, and normally that would do it. I said, listen, I don't care. I'm hurting. So she wasn't sure if I was faking or not. And she knew I wasn't the type to just stay out of school. So she took me to the doctor and she told the doctor, and I, I learned all this later. She told the doctor, she said, listen, I'm not, he says he's got a stomachache. I can't tell. I can't tell if he's faking or not. And the doctor said, don't worry about it. I'll figure it out. She said, how are you going to do that? He said, this ain't my first rodeo. I'll figure it out. <laughs> so he walked in there and he said, he said so son, let me, tell, let me ask you. He says, your, 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 your stomach's hurting. I said, very badly. He said, well, I'm going to have to check it out. I said, what? He said, I'm going to have to look up in there. Now, I was only 13 years old, but I, and I knew there was only two ways there. One was that way and one was the other. <laughs> and I had a 50-50 shot. 
Neither one of them sounded pleasant. And I said, well, look, is it really, that really necessary? I mean, can't you just give me some pills or something? He said, well, I can give you pills, but I need to look to see if what I'm giving you pills for is actually it. He said, so I need to, I need to look. So he reached behind him, and he picked up um, something that looked like this. <laughs> and he held it, and he looked at it in such a weird way. He said, this is called the iron horse. That was his word for it. This is called the iron horse. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lube this up and I'm going to insert it in your rectum. They say it so nicely. I'm going to insert it in there and I'm going to press as far as I can until it stops. And then I'm going to blow air. And when I blow air, your intestines are going to straighten up and I'm going to shove it some more. And then I'm going to blow air again and I'm going to shove it some more. And I'm going to extend it as far as I can up in there. And when I get it as far up your behind as I can, I'm going to insert a camera in there and I'm going to pull it out slowly and look and, and see, what I, see what I can see. And I thought, is that really necessary? I mean, like, honestly. I said, look, I'm just hurting. Give me some pills. He said, no, I, gotta, I said, listen, you do what you got to do. I'm in pain. You just do what you got to do. He looked at my mom and he said, he ain't faking. <laughs> he ain't faking. He's telling the truth. He said, man, we haven't done anything that, like that since the 50s. And then it hit me later, those poor people who grew up in the 50s, they actually did that to people. I mean, as a matter of fact, before we leave tonight, um, if, you've, if you're here tonight and you've been iron-horsed, we need to pray for you for deliverance. I mean, my goodness. If you're here tonight and they did that to you, I am so sorry. I'm so, so infinitely sorry. And we'll be glad to pray for you tonight. But think about it. Think about medicine now. Do you realize in 50 years, we're going to look at how we treated cancer. We're going to go, what were we thinking? We're constantly learning new things. God is infinitely big, but God is also infinitely small. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. In 1911, they discovered atoms. Before that, they said molecules were the smallest part of you. And then they actually said, then they actually said wait a minute, no, 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 no. Atoms make up molecules. In 1911, they said atoms actually are the smallest part of you. Then later, they discovered protons, neutrons, and electrons. So they said the protons, neutrons, and electrons make up the atoms. So they're actually the smallest part of you. Then in the 50s, they discovered baryons, which make up the electrons. So, so they said, no, wait a minute, no, baryons are now the smallest part of you. But, but then in, in the 60s, they discovered mesons, which make up the baryons, which make up the electrons. They said, no, wait a minute, no, okay, mesons are the smallest part of you. Then in 1968, they discovered quarks which make up the mesons, which make up the baryons, which make up the electrons, which make up the atoms, which make up the molecules, which make up you. Then in the 80s, they discovered something called gluons, which make up the quarks, which make up the mesons, which make up the baryons, which make up the electrons, which make up the atoms, which make up the molecules, which make up you. And how many of you know that the longer we journey and the bigger the microscopes get, the smaller the intricate details of your life are actually going to be? Actually, God is infinitely big, but to fully understand God, you have to understand not only is God infinitely big, God is infinitely small, concerned about every small detail in your very breath, because that is where he lives. To truly walk with God means embracing the idea that I will never walk beyond God. I have to trust him. So let me ask you a question tonight. Are you a cooperator with God or a manipulator of him? When we make, this is so important, when we make God manageable, our concept of God becomes an idol. And here's the worst part of it. 
we always force ourselves to bow to our idols. But worse than that, we force everybody else to bow to our concepts of God. Whatever idol about God we make, we make everybody else bow to what we think is right and we're in and everybody else is out. So let me close this session out with a few application questions. Number one, what are my concepts of God? What are my concepts of God? Number two, are those concepts bringing me to light or to darkness? Are they putting me in bondage or leading me to freedom? Number three, where are my concepts of God making my addiction to be right and to control even worse? Where is my concept of God making me an unloving person? Where do I believe that I'm right and everyone else is wrong? I'm in, everybody else is out. Can I give up all that? Here's the last question. Can I give up all that and simply trust God? That he is the big, mighty one living in me. So Lord, we give you that thought tonight. That you are actually living in me. Would you just right now where you're sitting, would you shut your awareness out to everything else and just become aware of the mighty one who can bear the burden? And I want you to do that by asking yourself this question. What would you feel like if you could feel God now? If you could feel him now, what would it feel like? What would it feel like if he flooded your very soul? What would it feel like if this room filled up with water and that water was the love of God? What would it feel like if it was enveloping you now? What would that feel like? What would it feel like if God got bigger in your life? What would happen in your life if God was huge? Lord, we bless you tonight. We proclaim you that you are king of the universe and we are not. Forgive us, Lord, for where we've conceptualized you and made an idol out of you. Forgive us, Lord, for where we bowed to something other than you. And forgive us even more for where we've made other people bow to it. Forgive us for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.